welcome to wherever you are. I'm Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to the 200th episode of the Matinee Cast. It's the official podcast of the Matinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. In autumn of 2009, this show posted its first ever episode dedicated to reviews of an education and the fantastic Mr. Fox. I'd love to tell you that the episode gave me visions of doing an additional 199 episodes. But I'd be lying. At first, I thought it was going to be something my friends and I did for kicks, and that interest on all sides would wane after a few months. But months turned into years, friends kept coming, and the movies got more and more interesting. And now here we are. More than 200 episodes have posted when one includes bonus pieces and special episodes. Several film festivals have been covered and discussed, scores and scores of guests from home and more than a dozen countries around the world, several shows recorded remotely from other cities, and many, many, many movies, good and bad, discussed. So how to mark the occasion? Well, the universe converged, as the universe is sometimes known to do. The 200th episode thanks to a teeny bit of schedule pacing, managed to overlap with my 40th birthday. Why, thank you. I don't feel a day over 39 either. In honor of the birthday, my first ever trip to London, England was planned. And when those three things overlapped, I realized I had to take advantage. So today, we go on the road. We go to the home of Shakespeare, Dickens, the Beatles, the Stones, Winnie the Pooh, and Harry Potter. Matinee cast 200 is recorded on the scene from the Picture House Cinema in Piccadilly Circus, London, England. Also, instead of talking about any one specific film, I thought I'd ask a singular question of my guests. Sort of like what we did with the 100th episode with film-going experiences. So to set that up, we begin with a quick thought from one of my writing and cinema-going idols to set the scene. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. So, good morning. We're here. It's uh, Saturday, June the 2nd. Did you know the Queen was coronated 65 years ago today? We learned that yesterday. We did. It's we went a, to see the crown, crown jewels. Um, in London at the Picture House Cinema, which is a really lovely cinema. I kind of want to make some time while we're here to see a movie here. And um, for Matinee Cast 200, a lot of things came together. And uh, my birthday, a trip to somewhere I've never been before, um, and a chance to sit down with um, some people who I know well, some people who I don't know at all, and uh, and do something a little bit different for Matinee Cast 200. So I'm going to introduce the table as it is. Uh, starting on my right, we have the uh, writer, the proprietor, the main voice behind She Likes Movies. It's Katie Hogan. Say hello, Katie Hogan. Hello. <laughs> How are you? It's it's it, you especially. It's really nice to finally put a face yeah. behind a voice. You've done several episodes of my show, um, and we've been chatting for like an hour and some now, catching up like. Like old friends, really. Yeah. It's, it's been lovely. It's been really so. good, actually. It's not, uh, the same thing. Nice to have a face, the name, and the voice. Thank you. As well. Welcome to 200. Uh, across the table from me, a uh, man who I know for so long, I can almost not remember not knowing him. Um, five or six full matinee casts now, um, a Toronto adventure to go along with it, an entire podcast series self-contained called oh, The Film yeah. Locker oh, several yeah. years ago, um, the writer of SimonCollum.com, formerly Screen Insight, one of the voices on Culture Fly on the Wall That's podcast yeah. with Joe Gungan. Simon Collum is here. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's, it's, it's really nice to be in your town for once. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. It's just, well, we recorded a fair few podcasts here, me and Joe, so it's nice that you can now experience Picture House Central. Very uh, Is there a plaque for you guys? There should be. <laughs> really? Should you know, be. like your table your table is roped off? and <laughs> Of course. Well, of course, Joe. Uh, Ryan, should of course. Be. Yeah. I'll, I'll look around for the plaque. To my left, my uh, my co-adventurer on this London excursion uh, to mark my 40th turn around the sun, uh, who has been on far too many podcasts to count. Um, the only survivor, 
you have. You've been on a lot. Um, the only survivor from the 100th show to be on the 200th show. Uh, not that the others weren't willing or able. They just didn't want to take the flight. Um, <laughs> my wife, Lindsay Rigoni, is here. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. How's the trip treating you? Well, wait, now you can stop being jealous of me. Why? Because a few years ago, I came to London without you and hung out with Simon, and you were super jealous. <laughs> yeah, you guys went and, like, hung out at the BFI. Like, and, and I hadn't met Simon yet, either. That's the thing. She's like, yeah, I can see why you'd like him. I'm like, that's great. Can I find out why I like him? Yeah. Oh, and, and BFI is really nice. It's like, yes. it's great. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it. So I can stop being jealous. Are, are you ready to kill me yet? It's been two and a half days of, uh, like, being tethered at the hip. How, how are we doing on this trip? We've separated a bunch of times. Oh, okay, I, I forgot. Oh, yeah, no, I'm seeing some stuff without you today. Oh, okay, so, <laughs> yeah. so we're doing okay. We're, we're getting our own personal space. Yeah. It's all the working out well. Personal space is very important when you take a trip with somebody. Indeed. But I love you. I love Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I love you, too. In honor of the 200th show, I wanted to do something different than just talking about um, one singular film or a, a, group, a group of films. Um, we've been spending quite some time talking about all sorts, uh, except kind of the movies that we're going to talk about. And in the introduction to this episode, the famous quote from Roger Ebert um, that comes up in his book Life Itself and the documentary Life Itself about films being a delivery device for empathy. And I thought about that and how that has really fueled where I'm at in my film appreciation and my film criticism is as these tokens and these monuments to empathy for just other worlds and other lives and, and journeys that are not our own. So I wanted to think about that today and talk about films that made us feel, um, you know, perhaps for the first time, perhaps in a memorable occasion, in the case of Lindsay, something off the top of her head, um, where we felt a greater sense of empathy. start with you ladies first um your you actually told me your choice you're the only film <laughs> no, I know and I'm really curious because your choice is quite a curious one um tell people your choice for a film that stoked your empathy uh so the film I chose was uh where the wild things are um mainly because I don't really cry a lot at films and I did cry a lot at, during this film at different points as well um and I think it's mainly because I don't know, it's, it's about a little kid who just wants to get away from a home and he ends up on an island with a load of monsters. I mean, that sounds great to me. <laughs> so I can, um, I'm just like, yeah, I want to be Max. I want to run away to an island with a bunch of monsters and just have fun. Maybe try and avoid being eaten. But yeah, I, it was, I think it was the fact that he had been arguing with his mum. He didn't get along with the, the mum's new boyfriend. He didn't really have a connection with her anymore and he just wanted to run away. And I felt like that so many times. I was just like, I'm Max. And I just kept, I just cried at the beginning. I cried when he had an argument with one of his friends. I think it's with Carol, the main monster. The one that's voiced by James Gandolfini. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, it was about like, I don't know. It was just like having really close friends, but realizing you're not really, you're not really close friends with them. I don't know how to explain it in, properly. There's something about <laughs> films just, just reaching out and for some reason just yeah getting you and yeah. you, you getting it. And that's crazy. That's fascinating because when you talk about uh, where the wild things are, when I watched it, I, I liked it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, the, but I get what you're saying about there's something about you got him and he, the film got you. And yeah. that's great. It did get me. Because I think it's mainly because I cried. Because I, I don't cry at films. So the fact that I was just sitting there crying and my, my friends were sitting next to me going, what are you doing? I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just enjoying the film. <laughs> and then afterwards, they didn't really like it. So I came out going, oh my God, it was a beautiful film. It was amazing. And they were like, yeah, it was all right. And I was just, I don't know. I was like, you guys don't get me. And I, I felt like Max again, because he's on his own. He's on a boat sailing off. I think it's just about wanting to escape and feeling like you're not really part of the family and you're not really with your friends and then you just find your like tribe but then you to realize that you're not really part of that tribe and you just got to go it alone it's kind of deep but no, <laughs> i kind of felt like i just felt the empathy with max because i thought i i was max 
I've, I've had that feeling. Like, I remember, I've, I've, I've said to you once or twice in my life, I'm like, I think I need new friends. <laughs> like, I, I have, I'll, I'll, no, seriously, yeah. like, it's... Hopefully none of your current friends are... Listening. No, if, if, I'm off, I'm off guard. <laughs> thank, thank you, Katie, inside. No, but I mean, like, you just, you have a moment where you're feeling really down, really isolated, yeah. really lonely, sad, what have you, and just through bad luck everybody seems to be off in their own direction yeah. or you just realize that things in your life have changed and your your you know the, the friends that you associate with whether they're work friends or school friends or neighborhood friends they're not on the same point in their journey yeah. and it's a really lonely feeling it and is. so it's it, it, it's that's the thing that I think about when you say that Max felt like he found his people yeah. and they weren't actually his people so he's almost back to square one. Which is quite funny because I saw that film during university and at university I did film uh, production so I thought yes I'm finally going to be in a room with tons of people who really love movies and it really wasn't the case um... so I had a, like a small group of friends who I really did get along with I'm still friends with them now or well, most of them. Um, Probably they're not listening. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. She's in Birmingham. I don't know. <laughs> it's nice to meet a fan. <laughs> um, but it was just like, I, it, so yeah, it was like I, I thought I'd found my tribe, my friends, my film friends, and it just wasn't the case. And we differed. I found the same thing in, in it, I didn't find my guy went for production as well. Mm. It wasn't like a bunch of cinephiles. Like the way I know kind of in other parts of my life now. I didn't think about it at the time. It never really occurred to me. But because uh, I grew up just like being obsessed with movies. And I didn't encounter that when I went. Not that they, they weren't maybe just I wasn't close enough with people to like know their interests. But yeah, it wasn't. You think you're going to walk into this production thing and everybody's going. They're there because they live and breathe films. Yes. But that, that wasn't the case. I saw some. I saw something online recently about um, somebody who, who spoke to on somebody on a new film course. I'm not sure if the person is a lecturer or a fellow student or something. And the person said, and they said, "Oh, I'm going to go to the cinema on my own." And the other person who's studying film was like, "Oh, I never go to the cinema on my own. I could, I could never do it." And that is, I, I relate to that because I yeah. think when I was probably that age, I guess I felt the same. I don't feel like that now. Um, I, I happily go to the cinema on my own, um, but. It, it's, it's a funny thing because there is a difference between people, I think, who like going to the cinema and people who will literally go out of their way on their own at maybe a very obscure time to see the film at the cinema in that darkened room on yeah. the screen which you can't replicate at home. Now, the one thing I want to ask you about this film that Katie brought up is, I don't know if you have revisited it in the last two years or not, but in thinking about it, has your position on it and what it says and the empathy that it evokes, has it changed now that you're a parent? I haven't, I haven't seen it since I've been a parent and I haven't, I don't think I've really properly seen it since I saw it at the cinema. I think since then I did watch it, I think with a group of school kids. Right. It's not really the same. No. I'm not going to break know. down in tears while teaching. And to be clear, your daughter is really young. Like, yeah. Your daughter's not Max's age I've got all, all this to come. I mean, this is the thing. I've got my own list I need to make up of all the films I'll be watching with her. So, right, right. yeah, I mean, I will re-watch it. I definitely have time for it, put it that way. I definitely, it's not a case of I don't like it, but I just didn't, I didn't feel like that yeah. towards it. Having said that, um, I, the film which came to mind in response to your film yeah. was A Monster Calls, which I watched probably within a week of my daughter being born, funnily enough. And I was on my own at the cinema and literally <laughs> broke down in tears. In that final act, just... I, I didn't it just like a wave yeah. I just broke I mean and it, I watched it a, that movie I was going to say we tried watching it, it like, I've, I've heard a lot of people talking about, yeah. about it I actually haven't seen it yeah. <laughs> and it just and I never watched it, it and we were dead cold like, Do you know, we I, I felt like I wanted so I, I put myself into like an iron giant headspace and mm. it just it didn't hit me I think, the way I thought it would I think there's something again about the final act which you kind of know the whole film where it's going you know um but that final act just suddenly, it's like a gut punch. You understand the weight we of, the of what's yeah. happening. You know, the yeah. weight of that final act, just you, you get that weight, which is visually shown, but at the same time, emotionally is what's going on with the character. It just and just like, yeah, oh, very powerful. I haven't seen it, but I know what you mean when you, at the end of the film, the only other films I've cried at, one of them was uh, Lake Quartet, which is actually, it's an okay movie, but then there's a bit where Christopher Walken comes on stage and 
he, oh no, there's a bit before where he sees his wife and he's playing some music. And I just started crying. <laughs> and then I got out of the cinema and, my, and I, I met with my parents. They were like, oh, how was the film? And I was like, it was great. And then I just started crying again. They were like, wow. what the hell's wrong? And I was like, it was so beautiful. <laughs> what, they were like, we've never seen you cry. It's a Lake Quartet? Lake that's the quartet. one. With... But there were two quartet movies that came out in the same time. Oh, the one, the and musicians, I... not the singers. The one with Christopher Walken. Yes. And, yeah. They're, they're, they're playing and their instruments are going to go out of tune, so they got to keep on yeah. fussing with them really hard. And Christopher Walken plays, I think he plays I, the cello, but he has to Phil stop. Phil Seymour Hoffman is one of the others. Yeah, and oh then Catherine Keenan. Both, both, yeah, both the quartet movies yeah. are yeah. interweaving in my yeah. brain, and I can't distinguish. Oh, I haven't so. seen either, so you know I'm, I'm in that privileged position of I not having they, a I clue. I think maybe they both played Tiff. They did the same year, yeah. Which one am I seeing? Tiff is good for that. Yeah. Back to where the wild things are, yeah. was your empathy squarely on Max, or did you ever find yourself getting tugged towards what Carol goes through? Um, kind of, it's, it's very much, he's very much a mirror. Yeah. Um, and it's, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's a different point in the journey. I find like, I thought Carol at first was like, this is, I didn't empathize with Carol at all, it was purely on Max. Because I thought Carol was whiny. Sure. <laughs> and yeah, you're right. It's a mirror of Max. But because I see myself as Max, I'm not going to be like, that whiny character's not me. Yeah. But in a way, yes, they are kind of too similar. That's why I think they kind of clash. And then obviously Carol has a feeling of abandonment from, uh, I can't remember the character's name now. Someone with chicken feet. Um, oh, it's, it's letter- Janet. TJ? TJ or TL? Um, yeah. It's voiced by um, the, uh, the woman from Six, Six Feet, Feet Under. Under. Yeah, yeah. But it, so he feels abandoned from the, like being cut out from her. But she's more of a free spirit and doesn't understand. So again, I, that's why I couldn't. Uh, I, just, I didn't empathize with Carol because I. It's sort of like a disbelief. Like I don't empathize with that character because it's not me. When in fact Max and Carol are really similar. Yeah. But it's funny them. the way that works, though, isn't it? Because they're, they're yeah. like, like we said, they're two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. feeling abandoned. Max is basically the parent in that yeah. situation. Um, maybe that's the thing. Maybe like you empathize because you saw the evolution of one, but the other didn't quite evolve enough. Yeah, that, yeah. um, or when you're connected to somebody so much, mm. it's difficult to, to then open with the other characters yeah. simultaneously. Possible. Possible. You know what I mean? You're like running through this film vicariously through that character yeah. and it might be more difficult to then just kind of take that back step and then look at all the characters do you know what I mean because yeah. you're so invested you yeah. know which is great if it's the main character of course the one I actually felt more connected to was the over, apart from Max was Alexander like the little goat one because oh, he's, he's sort of like bullied and left in the corner see the ones played by Paul Dano yes Paul Dano like I, I'm pretty sure Paul Dano has a clause in his contract that he's got to get the crap beat out of him <laughs> in every film including where the wild things are gets an arm pulled off yeah, but yeah does. he's very yeah, he's very soft in this in this world of wild things he's yeah. the one that's soft spoken yeah. he's the one he's actually tries to be the voice of reason with um, with Carol it's like you know if, if Carol has a parent it's Paul Dano's character yeah but which is kind of stands in contrast to Max's mom, yeah. who's just kind of on her last nerve. Even though she really tries to calm him down and says, "Like, tell me a story." Yeah. You know, that's that's part. Of, I think that's probably my favorite part of that whole movie is when she's like, "Tell me a story," because you see when Max is at his best, yeah. his his imagination percolates and his mom gets him. Yeah, that's like the moment. Weird as he like, is. Oh. Yeah. Like, tell me a story because he likes telling stories. Yeah. I like telling stories. Indeed. <laughs> But, yeah, my parents never sit me down and go, "Hey, tell me a story." <laughs> Who's due? We need to rewatch uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah, we should end this with a little story—a story of our own. We watched Where the Wild Things Are the night before we got married. Oh. Uh, I'd love to tell you that we enjoyed the heck out of it, but um, <laughs> one of us, who is not me, uh, left their cell phone on in their bag, and it was on buzzing vibrate. on vibrate. Just because I needed to know if there was an emergency. We were literally getting there married. There was an emergency? Like the next Well, morning. there was an emergency that wasn't actually an emergency. But like my phone but because buzzed it, for like, I'd say the first 30, 40 minutes. Yeah, it's a 90-minute movie. My phone, I could just feel my phone. It was like a non-stop bus. So I finally oh like God. said, Ryan, I'm, i got to step out. Yeah. So I like went to the hall and I answered my phone. And there were so many messages like, where am I supposed to be? And what am I supposed to do? And, and oh, just, my God. And like I used to be a production manager, so I had made call sheets like for my wedding. But of course... 
the people in my wedding party aren't film people, so the, the call sheets meant nothing to anybody but me. So we were trying to decompress the night before our wedding, trying to like forget about everything for just, just 90 minutes. We're like, it's 100 minutes with trailers. We can we can turn off the world for 100 minutes and just, you know, be us for a Nope. Nope. Oh my god. I thought it would be sweet because we met at the movies and we're like, oh, the, well, yeah. the last thing we do before we get like married, we'll go see a movie together because it's kind of like, and it didn't work out. There was, <laughs> there was no empathy that day, let me tell you. All right, lad, you're up next. I got, a, I got a weird one. Which, well, well, I mean, I listen, weird. Okay, I, I, should, I, I should back up and explain. Katie actually copped to which one she was going to... I forgot to tell her, don't tell me. Mm. So she actually copped to where the wild things are. And I read it and it's like, really? Okay, looking forward to hearing this explanation. Um, so beat that, I guess, so is the thing. Before we recorded, um, Lindsay was saying how um, it's, you know... Often the films are about empathy, which is obviously part of what Ebert's quote is about. Is, is that's often what we're accessing. Yeah. So it's quite broad the choice. So it's more a case of choosing something whereby that empathy is kind of reached another level. And the one I'm thinking of is one actually I saw quite recently called The Mercy, which is um, a Colin Firth, Rachel Weisz film. Um, it's, it's about this guy called Donald Crowhurst. It's a true story. He, he, in the 60s, the Times had a competition, which is if you could sail around the world, you know, you'd get, you know, this prize or something like that. And he turned, and Donald Crowhurst was like, I'm going to do this. And this is a guy, he's a uh, fair day kind of sailor. He's not somebody who is a competitive sailor. Okay. And yet he just decides to go and do this task and sail across the world. And so you see how in this very small, quaint British town, he kind of gets uh, ready and gets his boat ready and prepared and then he off he sails uh, uh, to, to sail around the world. At this stage, I think I can see how far we get without me giving too much way after that. Um, but what was fascinating about it is First off, it was filmed a, fair, a few years ago before the uh, British ref re the EU referendum. Okay. But there's something quite fascinating about this story about a British person claiming they're going to do something which is ridiculously impossible if you haven't had got the skill set and you haven't got the skills and yet just doing it anyway, just getting in a boat <laughs> okay. and sailing off. And even like you see, it's kind of brilliant. You see him kind of. You just see in Colin Firth's very sensitive acting, like how he, he, he believes it, but you know, what the hell's gonna happen? Like, right. what part of the hook of the film, which I found so fascinating, not knowing the true story of Donald Crowhurst, because it is a true story, is um, I didn't know where it was gonna end, and I didn't know, I was like thinking, he can't, he's not actually going to do this, this is ridiculous. And you see, and it takes a long time showing him do this, leaving his family, his wife, he's got two kids, you know what I mean, to do this thing which is just ridiculous, like, it, it, uh, you know, but I think it taps into something which I think uh, we can relate to of kind of setting ourselves these goals or wanting to do something and some of us kind of stop short and go, actually, let's be a bit more realistic, let's uh, compromise and work out something together. But some people just go and, at the cost of their family, at the cost of their loved ones, at the cost of who knows what else, they will push through and believe something which may be way off and I think there's something about that bullish uh, way of thinking and that I, I mean I get I know people who convince themselves of doing something which is not the right path Brexit you know <laughs> I, I get it you know and I think therefore in empathy watching that film was quite fascinating to see that whole thing play out that's that's an incredible choice um <laughs> It's, no one's seen it. No, no one's seen no, but, it. But it's still a story, though. Yeah, yeah no, okay, you know what happens. It's, it still begs a lot of questions because, I mean, okay, so you and I, we're both fans of Steven Spielberg. Yes. And he has said notoriously through the years that one of the things he wishes he could go back and redo from one of his movies is if he were to write Close Encounters now, he never would have had the father leave the family. He never would have had Roy, Nor Roy Neary get on that mothership and leave. Mm. And... 
you're saying you're saying the opposite. You're saying I know exactly why he got on that. I, it's not shit. again. You know, I get I get what's going on there. Put it that way. I wouldn't do it. Right. Um, but I which, get, which is the point of this yeah, whole exercise. Exactly. I. I mean, but I get what's going on there. The, I, the way the film portrays his interest in it, and this, and you know, let's be honest. He, he talks about imagine I'll be this person who sailed across the world, and you do Ooh. think that would be fucking awesome to be that dude who did this. <laughs> right. but, but but you can't, mate. <laughs> you know. Um, but he goes. He, but he goes as far as to say, you know, obviously he needs the money and he needs the boat, and he gets a local company to kind of foot the bill on this, a suit on the promise that he sails around the world. Now, if he doesn't, his house is gone. Everything is gone. And yet, off he sails. (laughs) Put it this way, he sets off. So, from that point, if you don't know the story, it's a great story. You spell it all out like that, and to me it sounds like lunacy. Mm. But you put it into a film, and you Mm. colour it with acting, and you colour it with photography, and you colour it with writing, and you build up this empathy for something that is... Lunacy yep. on, on, on the page. And crucially, what does happen next? Right. Like, where, like, okay, uh, let's say he can't do it. What does he do then? And we see what people assume he has done yeah. and everything. So it's, that's so interesting to see that play out. All those thoughts, there are, it's great. Katie, you haven't seen this movie, but you said you know the story. Yeah. Is, is, Simon, is Simon crazy or is Simon empathetic? Nah, I wouldn't say crazy. I, I, would, I would agree. I don't agree. Please but cast I judgment it. on somebody you are meeting today. <laughs> it's more like because I know what's happened, and yeah, it is. It, but I can understand seeing a film where you're just, if you look at it like as a film, but not as a true story. You're just like, yes, go live those dreams. Mm. Leave your family. Go do it. But yeah. then, then back in reality, you're like, yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> he would never do that. You can't leave your family behind. You're going to lose your house. You got no money. What are you doing? It's not realistic. So you're not empathetic to this story. Oh, I'm not. No, I'm not empathetic to the story at all. Uh, whether it, especially not because it's a true story as well. And it's just like it actually happened. This guy actually thought this was a great idea. Mm. I'm totally going to go do this. And it's. Well, see, I, I wonder, think they, I they, wonder they kind of you, gloss over it. And but I wonder like, then oh, if you saw this film and saw it told in this way, yeah. if it would make you feel differently. If it's if it's the way that it's put on paper, mm. that, that you're like, no, this is nuts. But it, the, you get in the dark. And you get into, like I yeah. said, this machine, this delivery device for empathy, yeah. and it would it would change your mind just like this much. I, I wonder. I'm, I think they do. No. I think they do that whole first um, act. Um, maybe it's even the first half, but the first chunk of it um, is it kind of is on that basis of mm. here he is, he's going off to do this thing. I think it's shot Cheer very much in that. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I think, right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, would, I think the Donald Crowhurst story is something that uh, a lot of British people know. So I think they've made this film with the intention that most people probably know it. I mean, there was yeah. another film, I think, called Crowhurst, which has come out this year, again, detailing the same story, which is... Is a documentary, though? Uh, ooh, I'm not sure. No, I don't think it is. I think it's a similar, just like, retelling of, the, of what happened. And I'm not sure what angle that that one takes. It might be superior. Um, they sort of... This one, they're sort of assuming what happened. Like, mm. this is what we think happened. No one really knows what happened. Well, there's not much. I mean, there's not much we can kind of. There's certain things which did happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like should we talk like what happens? Because I for feel it. go for it. Yeah. Are you sure? Okay. Yeah. It's I mean, there is a true story. It's, 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 it's real a Historical real event from it's, the sixties. Yeah, so thing. Donald Crowhurst ultimately died. You know oh. what I mean? He, he's but found... He ca- was, they didn't find him. He they, disappeared. Yeah. They found his boat. I'm going to go with dead. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually going to hope dead <laughs> because if he's not and he's just off somewhere and it was just his out, that's terrible. Yeah. So I'm just going to hope that he, he died in, in the chase of his, of his dream. Whoa. There are things that happened on the boat which did, um, in terms of... In terms of... In points of the story which clearly they, they that did... Uh, factually happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. Actually, I'm going to stop you there because what you're now tapping on actually is one of these really muddy areas where, and now I'm understanding why Katie is saying I don't know that I would be empathetic. Yeah. Um, one of these really muddy areas where a film can frame something in a way that betrays the facts of the case, and the the, the touchstone that I come back to is Into the Wilds, mm. which is a film that I adore. Mm. 
I loved every second of that film. It shook me. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it now. I read the book that details exactly what he did and how he acted and what he left behind. Um, Christopher Supertramp, Christopher McAndless. And I hated this kid. Mm. I thought it was the most selfish, silly, just bratty way to die that, that, that he goes off and dies where he does and leaves behind parents that are worried about him yeah. and, and you know people who he meets on the road that are worried about him. But you put it into a film and you give it to the hands of a storyteller and you make me feel for him. I don't know. I, I don't know if I felt like that with Interview. I think it. I think it's purposefully framing it in a way that looks beautiful and looks stunning. But I always thought he's a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> like I, I did. And that's think, where his empathy right, ends. Right, I mean, I did feel like. Doesn't he burn his money at one point? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he burns his social security card. What yeah. a dickhead! Yeah. Like, come on. What's come on. Wants to live <laughs> off the land. You can have a lovely view in the background, but you're burning. You're literally burning money, man. Like that's just. You keep it, keep it quiet. Are you, are you in the middle on this? Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think. You're still trying to think of a movie? Yeah. Oh, okay. But, but this kind of, like, we've seen a lot of films like this where, you know, where somebody real and their life has been portrayed and one of us or the other will say, that's not what happened. Or they're leaving something else. Do, do, you, do you find that you can get caught up in the movie or you start thinking about the real story? It depends on how interested in the real story I am, I guess. Oh, really? Yeah, like if it's if it's a story that like maybe I followed or I was like, you know, really like, oh my God, they're making a movie on this thing that yeah. I, I've like read tons about and then the, you get there and they're like, oh, they just kind of glimmered over this was kind of like loosely based on. Then I just kind of tune out a little bit. But, uh, but but something like this where it's taking some, taking what is ultimately kind of a very selfish act you'll, you'll be like no I can't I can't go for this I, well I haven't seen it so I have no idea uh, I think with, the, with regards to the mercy I, I'm all I'm saying is that I get what's going through this guy's head before he sets sail right and I understand that now like I said I wouldn't do it but it, it I get the kind it's, of, he's getting wrapped up in what it'll be like to yeah. come back, what it'll be like to, that's what he's getting wrapped up in, and that sense of achievement, and I think we all like to kind of set these goals, and da, 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 and but then the cost is just so great. And it's, that's, and that's, that's it, a that, different part. I think part you've just story. touched on the key, though. It's not whether or not you agree with it, it's just about, can you get it? Yeah. Right? Like, I think that's, that's why we are where we are, is we're not taking enough time to get what the opposition and the argument is trying to say. We're just trying to beat them into they're wrong, not understanding where they're coming from. But like on a smaller scale, if I decided, right, I'm going to like, you know, become like crazy fit and strong, that would be, a, that would have a huge impact on my, my wife and my child because I wouldn't have much time for them if right. I had to do all these things. And that's, the, that's, that's where I would, there's a parallel I think on this sense of, oh, I really want to do this. But there's a cost there, yeah. you know what I mean? And balancing that is part of it. And granted, it's not setting sail across the world, but it's effectively being so selfish and framing it as this dream which you've always wanted to achieve. Yeah. And I think that there's something I get to that. Is it the thing like you can imagine the ending and you're looking forward to the ending? Yeah. You're like, yeah! Like when, because um, I, I used to do pantomimes. So I, my favourite part was getting the applause at the end. Mm. <laughs> oh, cool! So cool. I'd go through that hell, and then I'd be like, yes, I got my bow! So you're thinking of the ending. Yeah. So that's why you're like, yes, I can imagine like being at you're the end getting cheered on. I love you're, that. You're thinking yeah. about the, you know, like the, the steps that you'll be able to run without running out yeah. of breath. You're thinking, you know, that there's that old silly thing about like the dress you'll be able to fit into. Yeah. That, that kind of crap. Like, yeah, yeah like, thinking about the end, the end result. And just pushing yourself so much for something which ultimately is not, you know, the meaning of life. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, no. when, you, when you achieve that goal, then what? And yeah. even with this guy, he didn't think like that, what's clearly. The line, what's the line in Mad Men? What is happiness? It's just a moment before you want more happiness. They're, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh and, you know, well, again... Well, cynical in a hurry. But again... <laughs> Damn! Going, going, oh, going, sorry, going, sorry, back, going back to Brexit, the referendum was, what, two years ago? Yeah. And now... How you I doing? Mean, like, all the, all the people who obviously voted for it, like, they got what they want. Theoretically, in the same way with Trump, people should be like, yay, look at us, we, we got what we want, we can have this beautiful utopia we always dreamed. That is not what's happening. And that's kind of what's fascinating as well. Um, in the same case, Donald Crowhurst, it did not work out for him. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool, thanks, mate.
My wife has put much study, thought, and consideration into this segment of the show. And, uh, you know, you, you, you made lists. You, you had... You, you, you know me. You had... Uh, I know you're... It's a I'm notorious list. for coming... You don't know. I'm notorious for coming on the show and being the only one I'm prepared. And, and right on cue, <laughs> here we are. Um, to be fair... There are stories that say that after a while that you tune out your spouse's voice. Yeah. Is, is that happening yet? Oh. Yes, it's been yeah. together for Hap- 16 years. So it's like where the wild things are and happen around <laughs> yeah. there. Um, okay, to be fair, you did mention this subject matter to me like, what, a week ago? At least. And I did not understand. Because you wouldn't tell me what your Because you weren't empathetic was. to my plight. <laughs> you weren't empathetic to the, 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 the mission of a podcaster. Well, my issue is I'm empathetic to like... Everything I always, I get very emotional. I always can feel what other people are feeling. So when I watch, and I think that's why we make movies. You, that's why you watch movies to put your, be able to put yourself in the shoes of someone who, and that's why we read books too. You get to experience another life, another person. So when you say like, oh, what's a movie that made you feel empathetic? I was like, well, movies. Right. So it's very difficult for me to. So then I was trying to think like, is it movies that made me cry more? In which case, I would have to say like anything where the main character is an animal. Right. Do you know what I, mean? like, I, I did read something about, apparently with kids' books, kids are not as empathetic with animals as they are with humans. Really? See, I was, you, whereas you're I was all of the animals. Completely different. Yeah. I used to work in a restaurant, like I was a uh, waiter when I was like a teenager uh, at this restaurant where we had an, a room where we illegally played children's movies. It was like the kids' room. Mm. And we would just illegally play kids' And there was, I don't remember what it was, but there was this movie about a beagle. And I could not tell you what it was. I think maybe it was like Shiloh or something. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, like an actual beagle. Not, an, not actual, an animated beagle. Not an animal beagle, like a real life beagle. And I, okay. I've always been really empathetic with animals. And I could sometimes, like I was just a teenager, I could barely, like I would have to leave the room. every day. And I saw this movie hundreds of times because it was always like playing on loop because my boss liked it. Oh, God. And I would just have like full on meltdowns. Because like, the, I, it was just, your boss wasn't empathetic. He was not. Because <laughs> he made me listen to one CD and watch one movie uh, it's not, on it's loop for like five years. But oh whatever. Wow. But what did you come up? With? Okay, so initially my initial thought was going to be Iron Giant because to Good feel answer. to feel yeah. empathetic for something that's not real, that's just a robot. I think that's or eat something like ET. ET. Yeah. But I'll try to be. <laughs> I don't know. A little we'll more come back to those because those are good answers too. What else? What's your so the one that I'm going to stick with just because I know it really well and I I'm sobbing mess every time is Billy Elliot. Just because. Okay. And okay. it's actually not so much for Billy Elliot who I can empathize with very easily because he just wants to dance. Because you want to dance. He just yeah. wants to dance. Just <laughs> let him dance. It's the father. Oh my in god. That because by the end of the movie, oh. the the look on the father's face when he walks. When he's like traveling to see his, and he, he, it was this journey to get here, and he's not someone in real life that I would ever be able to identify with. He's a coal miner. He's like a tough man. He's, you know, he's not artistic or anything. It's but he is had it late seventies or early eighties. Early eighties. Early early eighties. It's the, yeah. the height of Thatcherism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, a, you know, he's a miner, and they're on strike, like long strikes too. Like yeah. his wife's on for they, like months or. Yeah. And so he's just trying to support his family. So it's someone just not like me at all. But through the movie, he actually has to learn to empathize with his son's desires and what he wants. By the end of the movie, when he is going to see his son perform for the first time, and he's, he, you know, when they're walking, up, they're going up the escalator, and his his son is, just keeps going like, "Dad, pay attention, come on," because he's like mesmerized by his beautiful surroundings. I am a bloody mess by that point in the film. And but it, and it's. The thing that I like about that is like that kind of blue collar working class uh, life that is not our reality at all. Like besides the fact that it's set when like you know we were just kids in the, in the era of the film, um, certainly not our country, not our reality, not our social structure, and yet you understand it and like hang on to all of it. You probably even hang on to his resistance to why he doesn't necessarily support Billy or has, tr- also, has trouble accepting it early on. And it's like, also, you, you certainly he, get... He actually can't because, it, like, even if he wanted to, and you can you feel that when you're watching the movie, even when he... You can see he's kind of like, well, this is what my son wants to do. He physically can't because he doesn't have the money. They can barely put food on the table. Yeah. So he's just in this impossible. So then you just... 
I just, my heart just... A, I think there's a side of it, isn't there, where he's kind of going through the motion, where he, when he decides to support the son, basically, yeah. Yeah. it's like, I'm just going to do what I have to do, we're going to get to the place, I'm going to take him to the place, but I think that that last shot of him, as he's oh. in the audience, and you just see him kind of, that intake of breath, I mean, it's just, I think he doesn't even realise suddenly how much this means to not just to, uh, his son, but to him as well, and I think up until that point, you know, I don't think he realizes what's going on. Inside. He's doing what he has to do because he can, because he obviously they do get the finances and all that stuff. But ultimately, that moment, that last shot of him is just so like it's suddenly, oh. it, it's just incredible. Yeah. And his Katie, you look like you're tearing up right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Whenever that movie like comes on, because I watch, I do watch it a lot. If if I'm flipping channels, because it's on the movie network too. Like if it ever just comes on TV, and it's anywhere near the ending, I have to stop because the the last scene in that movie is one of my favorite scenes of all time. Mm-hmm. I just it, I think it's so beautiful and it gives me all the feels in the in a good way. And sometimes it gives you that good kind of cry. Yeah, you felt good about it. Like you needed to have the cry. The best cry. Yeah. You know, it's like the end. Of, it's like the end of Coco when they're all dancing and they're all together. <laughs> like they're together. It's just lovely. Do you know what gives me the cry every time? Is it, at the end of Monsters Inc. Just his face when he opens the door and you just hear. Good cry. Oh my god. And she just. Know what? I don't cry at that. Oh, no, I, I cry every time. Don't no stone. empathy at all. I don't like Boo though. I like oh. the monster. Oh, fair, fair, fair. So I thought, but I, for Monsters University, when they're sort of like. They're told to they go is really upsetting. I found that sad. I think the original one, though, the end is also one of my favorite endings. It's so simple. It's just his face, and it doesn't cut to what he's seeing. Mm. But it's just so lovely. Those kind of mm. shots are really good. We don't see what they're reacting to. But they're just their reaction's really nice. But unfortunately, I just don't know. But then we see <laughs> Billy Elliot. I understand why people love it. on the stage, <laughs> leaping in the air. <laughs> shot <laughs> frozen. Oh. Speaking of which, that ballet is playing here, I believe, at the moment. Is it Swan Lake? Yeah. No, but it's... it's is it it's, Swan Lake? It's, it's a yes or no question. Is it Swan Lake? It's Swan Lake. Yes and We no. have seen Swan Lake several times. <laughs> He's actually... Last I'm, time we've I'm swanned out, really. I, <laughs> I love it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's different. It's awesome. No, it's not. It's not the same. No, I'm pretty it's sure it is. Oh, is it Boys Ballet? Yeah. Like Matthew Ball. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to convince him to see that one. Not happy. He's, he's You'll have that moment, Ryan. I've sharp in take of breath. Yes, yes, and sharp. I, 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 Your brother Shane leaping <laughs> my empathy will rise. Um, but he has seen Swan Lake with me many, many times, and the yeah. last time we saw it was on our last trip to Rome, and I was like, Swan Lake's playing. And, and this is not a thing. It's not when we like, go to a different city. He was like, you know what? We need to find a production I'm of Swan Lake. Swan Lake like, for a lifetime. I'll go to other ballets with you, but. I'm, I'm good. But there's different it's, kinds you know, of Swan Lake. There's versions of Swan Lake where she lives at the end. This is not the Swan Lake. Podcast. What? What? She dies. No, my was like, "What? She lives?" Yeah. yeah. Um, what I what I do love about Billy Elliot that you're bringing up is, it's you know, it's it's really easy to throw stones at the people who voted for Brexit, yeah. the people who voted for Trump. But what I I re- and, and I, it's not a justification. But what I try to tell myself is, there's a reason. Oh, their yeah. their reality has its own challenges that we don't necessarily understand and it can be everything from financial to uh, you know an entire industry has just passed them by and the side the side of right the side that the majority agrees with still isn't bringing them along right Thatcher, yep. Thatcher yep. was supposed to be a conservative Thatcher was supposed to be on the side of you know the little guy and yet Thatcher was the one who was elbowing out these unions and elbowing out these miners it's you know you can say what you want to say for people who would vote for the other side for something radical and yet you need to look at this kind of life of where they have nothing and it's like what are they supposed to do you know it's 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 a really bitter pill to swallow because you don't want so like i was saying before to empathize with the wrong side of history but you can sort of connect these dots and see how you got them I think that's it. and with Billy Elliot in particular, you know, I think it does celebrate, you know, the working class. You know, what I mean, in, granted, it's in the context of a very uh, fractitious time, but of course, you know, what I mean, you know, you see them play on the streets, you see the kind of social, the community groups which they're a part of, and so on. Um, so I think they're a part of that as well. Um, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, son. Good call. <laughs> There's a pale horse coming.
I'm going to ride in I'll rise in the morning My fate decided I'm a dead man all right, so I guess it's finally my turn. For mine, mine actually kind of goes back to, it's kind of the film that really got me into film. Uh, like before, I was just, I was watching, and I was watching interesting stuff and headier stuff that my parents showed me, but not on my own choosing and not um, from like, you know, nothing that was like not a major release. Um, and then around the time I was... 18, um, I came across a movie that really changed my perceptions and, you know, a monster was created. Um, 1995, I would have seen it in 1996, um, Tim Robbins' film, Dead Man Walking, with Susan Sarandon, uh, Sean Penn. Yeah, he's a prisoner on death row, she's a nun who's basically a spiritual counsel, and it's a movie where just everybody is in just massive amounts of pain right there's so there's two teenagers were killed their parents are just screaming for retribution there's a inmate on death death row who claims he's innocent but really just wants somebody on his side and a nun who gets caught up in the middle of it all and every you, you can hang uh, not inconsistencies but you can hang a flaw on every one of them like the sister is counseling a convicted killer the the inmate is a convicted killer and he didn't that's the thing he claims otherwise but we inevitably discover he was he was there the parents are claiming for blood in a way that it's gonna make them feel better which of course it will not and it's all coming together in a mess so I know for one of these little things that I remember that was the first movie I saw that made me cry in a, in a, like in a theater I think ever but certainly in a theater and I was 17, 18 years old uh, I mean I was an art student so it's not like I was like a typical teenage dude but still I wasn't a guy who got misty at, at his art um, it kind of twisted my opinion of the death penalty um, it twisted my opinion of what will make you feel better it twisted my opinion on being there for somebody even if even if it's just to listen yeah. right because um, that's ultimately what she's there to do is give him an ear to listen to and I felt I didn't know it was empathy at the time but now that I'm looking back on it I'm like yeah that was kind of like you know uncut mm. you know <laughs> empathy that just like mainlined right into my system you guys must have seen this movie. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen it. I saw it at school, actually. We were watching it in RE, uh, religious education. Really? Yeah, because we were discussing the death penalty. Okay. And so she said, now watch this. We watched part of it. She goes, now you get to decide. The teacher was saying, now you get to decide um, what if you think there should be a death penalty. Because everyone, most people in the room were just like, no, there should be no death penalty. It's wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then she was like, right, watch this and see what you think. So we watched it and we were like, no, there should be no death penalty. Those men should get life or whatever. And then they, you watch the scene where you saw what they'd done, what they did, seriously. Sorry. And everyone in the room was just like, maybe there should be a death penalty. Yeah. <laughs> and then it sort of changed everyone's opinion. And it was just like, then there was like a big debate about it. And yeah, it was this, so up until the point where you actually see what they did to the teenagers. You, you can empathise with them in some way because yes, some people do just need to talk to somebody, yeah. no matter what they've done. Everyone needs like just someone. You need to... a confessor. Like it's a very yeah. religious movie. Um, you you need a you need somebody to unburden your soul. Yeah. Um, even if your soul is ultimately doomed, yes. give you just a moment. Yeah. Um, I should uh, thank you for reminding me. I was more Catholic at the time. Like, which is to say I was going on Sundays yes, and, my right. and my girlfriend was Catholic too uh, <laughs> who I saw it with um, so yeah so that was so until you playing into good work honey. <laughs> Sundays are for brunch yes they um, are right um, get away from the church yeah, yeah. I do think about going back from time to time and I'm like hey, no. you know and I was like it's like pulling you back in. It's, I, it's, it's, like, it's, the, like it's, it's, it's the guilt. It's the guilt. Something like yeah, that. Catholic guilt. Um, <laughs> yeah. You've seen this movie, obviously. Yeah, and I've seen. It was a long, long time ago, so it, I can't vividly remember. It's it aged all. very well. Yeah, I, I'd love to watch it again. 
Um, I think I, I kind of think to myself a couple of things. Number one, I kind of think how um, first off, when you started talking about it, I was thinking, oh, it, this sounds like it could work very well as a documentary. But then you talk about that confessor element and that those conversations, which you never really get such such close proximity no. to, which you can only do in, in a in a in a retelling or in a fictional story. Um, so. In that respect, that's great. Then there's another side of it, which is when you were saying how you know when you when you literally saw footage of what when you literally saw what they did and so on. But unfortunately, life isn't that simple, and that might be in the context of a film that might sway your opinion on the death penalty. But no court will ever have that reenactment to look back on. So in fact, it's a very cinematic. Yeah, it's it's when he's getting the needles in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, injections, isn't it? So it's at that point that they choose, like, you've seen the whole thing and then you see what they actually did and you're like, oh my God. Because you start to feel like a bit of empathy for the guy. Um, even though, like, oh, he says he's innocent, but there's a possibility he's lying. And then you're yeah, like, oh, yeah. I don't know. And then you see it, you're like, okay. Yeah. And then the empathy sort the of... Toy. There's a sim- there's you're a- sort of torn going, oh my God, I still feel sympathy for this guy. But, but he did that. But he did but it. But I think that there's the, the yeah. cinematic... Thing that a device they're using yes, yeah. to really twist it, which is just, which may be great in, when you talk about the death penalty and have those conversations, yeah. but actually, in the in the cold kind of setting of a court of law, mm. I don't know if it's maybe an accurate, accurate way of doing, or I don't know, it's just something which I think is worth factoring in. Well, the, the funny thing that they bring up with the court of law, not funny, haha, but interesting funny, of course. Yeah. is... Um, well, anytime I use the term funny in this yeah. context, it's <laughs> not uh, funny, haha. No, nothing but funny, yeah. Uh, absolute laughs at the death penalty. Is they talk about how it was, it was him and a friend who killed this teenage couple, and because the friend came from a background of relative means, that they were able to get him a better attorney, he rolled on his friend, and he's got a life sentence. Right, his Matthew Ponslet, the Sean Penn character, comes from abject poverty. They had no money, no nothing. They're relying on just human rights groups and the Catholic Church to further his cause. He's the one who dies. He dies because he has no other alternative, and his his you know co-conspirator had other alternatives. And it's that kind of thing. It's like you did it, but so did he. And yeah. he gets away while you're going to get killed for it. And it's it's like, that's not, this is not justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, in, in yeah. any form. And I think that's the thing. It's one of those films that raises more questions, maybe, than it yeah. actually answers. And yeah. that's obviously, yeah. that's a great thing of a film. You know, not just, you know, making you relate, but also making you see how much bigger, I mean, life is complicated. I think that's something which has changed dramatically with films in the last, say, 20, 30 years for the most part I'm thinking they're about to be but you know things are more complicated that's why villains aren't just you know a bad guy they have to have a motive and a purpose and we have to have sympathy for them and all because life is more complicated well maybe that's that's maybe that's why a lot of not to go too far down a rabbit hole but maybe that's why a lot of great television now is about anti-heroes yeah it's about the Don Drapers and the Tony Sopranos and you know like the the people who are not good people Mm. but are interesting stories Yes, yeah yeah You've been kind of quiet on this one. Do you? Do you? I haven't watched it like that. But you? Do you remember it? I, I remember crying my eyes out. Or because yeah. you were a good little Catholic girl and. Uh, I mean, I was not. <laughs> did you watch it, Nari? No, we didn't watch that one in school. Oh really? We watched Awakenings in school. I remember watching that. That's, I don't remember why. It's like Death Penalty and Awakenings. I don't know why we watched it. We watched. We had a, a cinephile religion teacher one year, and we just watched a lot of movies. But that wasn't one. Or maybe we did. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but you, like, you remember seeing that one? Did, like, did you ever think to yourself, like? I don't think there was ever any Catholic feelings when I watched it. I don't think I ever associated it with. No. Were there were there any, were there any feelings of empathy towards towards him? Because he's, I mean, again, he's a bad person. Like, I'm you, sure you shouldn't was, but you it was shouldn't so feel long a thing. I, I mean, I obviously cried, and I don't know why else I would have cried because because the killers died. I think it's the Susan Sarandon character because you feel for her as well because she's she doesn't really know all the stuff that he's done she's just been told what he's done and he's telling her something different and then they sort of connect on a different level not like this is a criminal I'm here to talk to you it's you're another human being and I'm here to talk to you she says she's got the line one of those lines that stuck with me through my life and it's it's actually Helen Prejean's quote which they include in the movie as she says no but that is a good one too she says, I feel like we're all worth more than our worst mistake. 
you know, and that I th- like I think that's kind of what I'm like getting at today with with this whole conversation is whether it's loneliness or whether it's um, you know class or whether it's ambition for something different is it may ultimately be a mistake in the way that you act, but we're worth more than that, you know. Um, yeah, it's just the, the movie's faded in your brain, unfortunately. It's enough that I don't. I have nothing to say. Aww. <laughs> Um, no, I, it's it's one of those movies. Also, because lo- you told me your movie was going to be a different movie, so I didn't. Uh, what did I tell you it was going to be? You told me it was going to be Moonlight. I, t- I said that was my backup choice. Was oh, Moonlight. Okay. So Moonlight, I did Fine. also Moonlight feel good. I did. Moonlight crossed my mind. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's it's one because. No, you think Moonlight would have uh, came back in the last second there to, to, to take over? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's 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 kind of like that. Was that was an Oscar's joke. You didn't get it. Is it what joke? An Oscar's joke. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> okay. It's partying like it's 2016, are we? 2017? Um, no, that's 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 mine. And um, thanks, guys. Uh, this has been exactly what I wanted for episode 200. Um, all these kind of lines converge very nicely. Um, tell you guys, Lindsay. Lindsay. Uh, doesn't write anywhere if you want to no, you can follow her tweets and see about what's going on in the cats um, <laughs> but uh, if, if people want to follow I guess Simon will start with you if they want to follow your work anywhere uh, just, I, I think I'd share it all on Twitter as well at Screen Insight nice Katie Hogan uh, yeah same for me on Twitter at Shogun no Hogan Shogun I forgot my own handle yeah. <laughs> it'll all be in the show notes I, <laughs> I feel very empathetic for you in your time <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys Girls and boys, I can't thank you enough for being a part of this episode and this entire project with me. Like I said off the top, I started this as a lark, but over the years, I began to consider it a very big part of who I am, thanks to the continued support and listenership. I know sometimes it can come across as overly enthusiastic and earnest and with its heart on its sleeve, but like I said, it's who I am. So some quick words of thanks before I go. First of all, thank you. If this is the first episode you've listened to or the 200th, thank you for taking time out of your busy life to sit down at the table with my friends and I. Attention is in short supply nowadays and everybody wants to be heard. So getting even a few minutes of your attention is something I don't take lightly. There's been a lot of days where I ask myself, who's still listening? And I can't tell you what it means to hear every once in a while, even one person say me. Secondly, thanks to the many people who have helped me craft, curate, correct, and circulate the show over the years. I'd love to tell you that podcasting is easy, but the truth is keeping one going takes a lot of work. There have been several people who have put their fingerprints on the show as it stands over the years, and I'm grateful for each and every one of them. Next, my thanks to Katie Hogan. It's a little crazy in this world of social media that we can think we know somebody well enough to ask them to sit down face to face, but the reality is it can still be nerve-wracking and sometimes anxiety-inducing. Katie could easily have balked at the idea of sitting down with three perfect strangers on a Saturday morning, and I wouldn't blame her, but she was enthusiastic from the jump, and for that, she has my deepest gratitude. Next, my thanks to Simon Collum. Simon is a lad I've known for 10 years now. And it's truly incredible how time flies. There have been stretches where we talk several times a day and stretches where we don't hear from each other for months. He's gone from a friend to someone I care for like a brother and his passion and grace know no bounds. Simon, his wife Sarah, and their daughter Siobhan treated me to the most wonderful afternoon in London after the recording of this show. And it was an amazingly special moment in a week filled with special moments. Last, but certainly not least, my thanks to Lindsay. There's a small irony in the fact that Lindsay is the show's most frequent guest, and yet she never listens to an episode. But that's the way things go. She has a way of giving me just enough of what I need to be my best self without puffing me up too much. I'm truly lucky to have been given such a wonderful gift on my birthday, and even luckier to have such a wonderful support for projects like this. So that's 200. I'd love to tell you that we'll go on the road again for 400, but I try not to think that far ahead. In the meantime, I'm going to go about trying to shake my jet lag, get my sleep schedule back on track, and figuring out why all of a sudden everyone is driving on the other side of the road. 
We are coming back on short rest with MatineeCast 201 next Monday, June 18th. We'll be back to discuss Hereditary with a brand new guest to the show. My own site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more podcasting content, you can find back episodes of the show by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, uh, Blueberry, Google Play, you're welcome, Paolo, and I'm still working on getting it listed on Spotify. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on any of the films we discussed or films that give you your own newfound sense of empathy uh, can be emailed to ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, Facebook.com slash dark matinee, or of course the comment section of the site. For Katie, Simon, and Lindsay, I'm Ryan. Thank you so much for 200 shows, and we'll see you at the matinee.